0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, in a continuing conversation on the corrupted corporate media with former U.S. Marine-turned-anti-imperialist commentator for New Atlas
1: and reporting out of Thailand, Brian Berletic. You're in the United States. I'm an American, but I have been looking from the outside in for so long. Uh, maybe you could give us some insight into what average American people are are thinking as they look at this situation unfold in Ukraine.
2: Well, one of the things that's happening in America now is that I think more and more people are waking up. I think uh, America is moving in the right direction when it comes to media the um and this is uh, this is very much related to the to your question. The uh, mainstream media is dying. People are, you know, there is a mass exodus from MSNBC and CNN and Fox. I was glad to see Tucker Carlson leave. You know, I used to go on his show. I used to talk. I like Tucker Carlson. Um, I used to go on a, he's a very. I mean, as a person, he's a very nice person, right? Very, very friendly person. And um, when he left, he took a lot of people with him. And I think that's one more good thing. So what's happening is more and more people are going to alternative media. Yeah, you have the people who are diehard Democrats or diehard Republicans, and they're still, which is like 58 or 59% of America, 41 or 42% are independents. They've left these two parties. And I think that that same group of people is leaving mainstream media and they're going to alternative media. They're here, they're watching Mercurs. they're watching The Grey Zone, they're watching Door, they're watching people who are trying to just find out what's going on for real and, um, and 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 relay it as best we can. So I think in the U.S., surprisingly, there's more and more people waking up to reality. The people that are left behind are the people that are still stuck to these two stupid parties. You know, I do a show in L.A. and, you know, that's... Democrat land, you know, uh blue no matter who land and the, and when I first started, I mean when the when the war first started, when that special military operation first started in LA, my first I would get calls, "Ah, that's you're standing up with the Russian evil Putin people whatever, right?" Man, all the calls I get now in Los Angeles are "Great job, Garland. We agree." And I say the same thing. I'm not, you know, wherever I am, every week when I go on, I say, "Look, I don't care if they throw me off. I'm going to tell the truth." I do every show like it's my last show. And 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 but bottom line is, it came back to me that there were people in LA saying, yeah, Garland's our last hope <laughs> in Los Angeles. He's, this is what Pacifica radio is supposed to be all about, anti-war. Because I pushed back on the imperial and colonial um, world powers, the, you know, we call them neocons or whatever you call them now, Now the people that go around the world and screw over, over over other people and steal their stuff. So even in Los Angeles, The callers are know about the I get I'm shocked. People are calling in. They're like, hey, this is Joe from Pasadena, California. He's like, let's talk about the Minsk agreements in 2014. And I'm like, holy crap. So the bottom line, uh, you know, I had Ray McGovern on and we talked about he went over the 2014 um, coup in Ukraine really clearly about it. And I went into his background a little bit before it started. You know, hey, Ray McGovern, this guy was with the CIA. This is the guy that walked up to the president. This is the guy who, his specialty was Sino-Soviet relationships. He speaks fluent Russian and German, all the stuff about Ray. Like, you don't have to believe me, but he's one of the foremost experts in the world. He went over the 2014 uh, Maidan coup in detail and callers in LA called in and said, hey, I didn't know that. Why, how come I didn't know that? So, to me, it's a positive thing. People are waking up in America bit by bit. So, I think we're moving in the right direction. And RFK Jr., Cornell West, even Trump. Oh, Trump will say some things that I, really makes me want to choke him at times. But the bottom line, he says some things that also make you want to stand up and applaud. You know, it's the best of both worlds, the worst of both worlds, and the best of both worlds with Trump. But, bottom line is this we now have political voices going into the election season who are saying, hey, man, we need to stop all this warmonger crap. Hey, the FBI and the CIA is out of control. I think that the Biden neocons pushed it so far that now the, the natural pushback in the United States is happening. And I think it's a good thing, and I think we're moving in the right direction. I feel good about the direction we're going. It's slowly, but you know, it's like a battleship. You turn the you turn the turn the wheel, and you wait, and it starts to come around slowly but surely. But it comes around, and once it starts turning, you ain't gonna stop it.
1: That's a good analogy. And uh, something else that I, I like uh, about your live show that you do, I, I heard you talking many times about. Um, I, I guess just to kind of summarize it, no no need for political uh, ideological purism. Some someone might say something you disagree with, but when they say something that you agree with, support them, come out and, and at least support the idea, uh, the thing that they're saying that you agree with, because you're never going to find the perfect candidate. And even if voting these people into the White House, ultimately no one's going to listen to them, they're a figurehead or whatever, the system is going to understand that people, this is what people want, they're catching on, this is what they want. And uh, even if they have to, to do something to address that, you don't fix all your problems, at least it's a step in the right direction. So I, I, I think that's an important message that I've heard many times on your live stream, especially about the upcoming elections. I, I think that it is changing uh, and going in the right direction. But, you know, we have to we still have to work uh, very hard on all of this. What about. What about the Western media right now in the United States? Because I honestly I don't really I I check like CNN, BBC, just a couple of articles. But on TV, what what do you hear when you turn on the TV in the United States, especially now about Ukraine and the the offensive? How is the offensive going according to the, the TV?
2: Oh, I think it disappeared. You know, I think it's conspicuously conspicuously absent from the news. From the news, um, and yeah, let's face it, I mean, I'm with you. I can't watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox anymore. Cannot watch it at all. I could watch Tucker Carlson, but the rest of that crap, I can't watch. Um, because I mean, when you turn it on, it's nothing but lies and perversions of the truth. It's nothing but a PSYOP on all of us. And, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, there's nothing, you get nothing but the latest, um, uh, musings of uh, an unnamed, um, uh, intelligence official who, you know, probably wrote the story and emailed it to him from Langley, Virginia. So the reality is, and, and as, as so many people, more and more people can't even watch it anymore and it's just so obvious that the people there are simply the voice of the ruling elite the voice of the corporate power the political parties so there's really the only you know and i'm sure you, you understand this the only reason i will go to the washington post or the new york times is to find a story to um say look at this crap look what they're saying or to like they had an article about uh in the new york times a few weeks ago it was about the 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 Nazi insignias in Ukraine. And it was basically saying, the problem is that they're wearing swastikas and and they're wearing this and they're wearing insignias and blah, blah, blah. Well, that was the perfect uh, uh, opportunity for me to bring that article up and say, the issue ain't the uniforms or the patches. It's the ideology that drives them to wear such uniforms and patches. But that also allowed me to expose the New York Times. So more or less, I think these types of media outlets are used very skillfully, I might add, by people like us in the um, alternative media to demonstrate the hypocrisy, to demonstrate the lies. They're actually a valuable tool for us because they're so over the top in their lies. And it's out of desperation. You know what I mean? Now, they're so desperate. What are they going to do? Everything's falling apart um, they, in Ukraine. I mean, what are they going to say about the offensive? They literally just like kidnap people off the street from some bar at midnight in Lviv you know, train the guy for like three weeks on something that he should be trained for six months to a year on. And then they say, take this thing, put it in forward and drive into that minefield. Kidnapping victims in a minefield is not an offensive. It's a kamikaze operation. And so what are they going to say about the kamikaze operation? Really?
1: That is a really good point. And you know, when people do wake up, it's impossible for them to go back to sleep. You can't wake up to the lies on fox news or cnn or msnbc and then go back to it and listen to it it's impossible so i I think that is i think that is kind of our roles to get people to wake up and once say well you don't have to explain everything but if you could find a few things and uh using the western media against itself i think is really important when people accuse me i don't know about you garland how many times a day you get accused of working for the russian government but I ask people, what are they paying me to do? Read the Washington Post to them? Read the NED's website to them? Because it is all, it's all all—it's all laid out there. If you just pick through the, the way they line up the rhetoric to lie to you, the truth is actually buried in there someplace. Uh, so the, the, so you're saying the offensive is kind of, what are, what are Americans focused on? What does it seem they're worried about the most? Just in general, it doesn't even have to be geopolitics.
2: Well, it's always the same thing. It's the economy. You know what I mean? When it comes down to the truth about politics, you know, having studied politics for all of these years. The average person wants to whatever. They want to raise their family or live their life or you know, whatever. If they're some single guy, they want to chase girls or, you know, go hang out on a Friday night and have a couple brewski's and watch the game. People just want to live an enjoyable life and have fun. And when it comes to it, down to it, I think that's what's that's what it comes down to. I think that the the people in power have to introduce them to these other things. You should be concerned about Iran and Taiwan and democracy and or whatever other kind of amorphous thing they have to introduce to them. You should be, and then they have to they have to introduce them to whatever they're saying and then tell them why they should be concerned about it. Because in reality, people are looking at their lives. They're looking at their things they can they can see and feel and touch and their jobs and their future and things of that nature.
0: And coming up next on the show, Gray McTavish talks The Witcher, men in kills and penetrating the mysteries somewhere in Montana, and his theory penetrating the mysteries of the real world, where, quote, there's an age where we're all kind of trapped inside in our minds. The UK actor, best known for his turn as a warrior dwarf in The Hobbit, at a Machiavellian Scottish tribalism 17th century Highland Scotsman and the Outlander sheds light on a dark subject in a different kind of war than invading Hollywood production in somewhere in Montana
3: I don't
4: forget every moment every day God I miss that woman
0: Where are we? Montana. This one location is holding up our entire chute.
2: Your ranch, it's such a nice bit.
3: I just don't trust this guy. This is a working ranch, Laney. It's not an amusement park.
0: If we can make this deal work out, then we can survive until next year.
5: Welcome to my ranch.
0: Let's get first team in here. First
5: team. Bob tells us they're making a movie out to your place. Yeah, I guess everybody knows. Holy cow, Forbes. Cut, Mike! Call a break! Damn it! Everybody would like to have
3: your attention. It's time to freak out! Where the hell do you get off interrupting my shoot? Where the hell do you get off punching my actors? What
2: the hell was that, Dad?
0: Just setting a tone. What am I supposed to do that will make him respect me?
5: Give it a shot,
0: John. Might wind up liking the kid.
5: What about him should I like? He doesn't respect me, and he doesn't respect
6: my way of life.
1: Why does everyone in this town have to be so
6: in your face? Bob. Trust me, John.
5: still I do, doesn't
0: it? And those were scenes from somewhere in Montana starring Graham McTavish, butting heads with an invading Hollywood production, and confronted by the culture of Hollywood and quote, "What happens when those two worlds collide? First, some scenes from The Witcher, then Graham McTavish. I've heard tales of your kind, Witcher. You're a mutant, created by magic, roaming the continent.
6: We don't want your kind here.
0: Hunting monsters for a price. I thought you'd have fangs or horns or something. I had them filed down. People call you a monster too. Why not kill them? Because then I am what they say I am. All of our choices draw our destinies closer.
3: If he is out there, there is still hope. I have to find Carol to them Don't
2: judge me.
0: They say witches can't feel human emotion.
3: What do you believe in? Evil is evil.
5: Lesser. Greater. Meddling. It's all the same. If you dismiss it... Get out!
6: You will unleash
0: true calamity upon us all. take that chance
5: Hello there. How are you?
0: Hello, Graham McTavish, and welcome to our show.
5: Uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay.
0: What can you say what season 3 of The Witcher will be all about? And what can audiences anticipate about what your character will be up to in the new season?
5: Well, season three. <laughs> season three, there are there are shocks.
3: Yes, oh. there
5: are shocks, <laughs> surprises, heartbreak. Um, there are some changes. Uh, some welcome, some maybe not so welcome in terms of what happens to certain people in the show. Uh, and it's... Uh, it's a roller coaster, honestly. Um, my character, uh, a man who has been confident in his belief that he knows exactly what is going on at all times, has to reassess. And uh, he goes through a couple of changes himself, so there's a lot to see.
0: Now, The Witcher has been described as, quote, navigating an ever more sprawling landscape of warring nations, races, monsters and maybe the universe. What are your thoughts about how these fantastical realms may somehow spring from the real world around us and from where these creations originate?
5: Interesting. That's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I think that fantasy, the fantasy genre generally, whether it's in book form or on TV, film, what it does do is that it takes the real world and actually makes it, strangely, into a safer place, I think. Mm-hmm. Because what happens in fantasy, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure that this is what happens, is that you always are facing great difficulty, great evil, uh, bad things happen, but good always triumphs mm-hmm. in the end. And it's, um, it, it's, it's very different from real life in that regard. And so I think one of the appeals of fantasy to a lot of people, and to me included, is that it provides a safe place, a safe world for people to visit, um, knowing that however bad things get in that world, um, you, you know that in the end, things will go, go right. And uh, it's, it's very satisfying, fantasy. Um, I mean, it takes, you, it takes you on all the journeys that all drama takes you on. Uh, but that, I think, distinguishes it from many others. Genres.
0: And what can you say about an unusual turn for you in the upcoming somewhere in Montana, where you play a rancher butting heads with Hollywood, filming a movie on your land?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I'm really very proud of that. I went to the premiere of that movie last week, and it, it, they've done a they've done a great job. What really drew me to the film was that it it talks about something that we need more of, which, in my opinion, which is uh, mutual respect and tolerance. Um, And that doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean let's not have disagreements or let's not have debate, let's not have alternate views and all the rest of it. But I think um, in my character, my character is a uh, a very typical Montanan rancher, um, you know, and, and he, is, he is confronted by a world that he isn't really familiar with, the, the culture of Hollywood, the culture of, you know, liberal kind of California coming to his, his ranch and what happens when those two worlds collide. And it's not really what I think a lot of people would expect. Um, and it, it really is, I think, very timely as a, as a story. And uh, it's a kind of an old fashioned film in many ways it's very gentle um it's very beautiful and there are some wonderful wonderful performances in it and uh, i'm very very proud um it's going to be there um talking about uh early next year oh. is when it will be out for general release um it's going to be in theaters and uh yeah i will definitely be keeping people posted
0: about that and i wanted to ask you what city are you calling from
5: london oh okay. i'm in london
0: and in your unimaginably enormously busy life, what can you say about yet another production you're involved in, and why? Men in Kilts.
5: Yeah, yeah, we shot that. Yeah, Men in Kilts, the second season of Men in Kilts. We shot that in New Zealand, uh, the beginning of 2022, um, and we wanted to explore um, in a follow-up to the first season. We wanted to explore where Scotland went, where 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 Scottish influence started to um, take hold. And New Zealand is a very good example. I mean, it's, it helped that I lived there part of the time, uh, but it's got, I think, 20 to 25% of its population are of Scottish descent. Um, and the, the interesting uh, kind of um, meeting between the Highland culture and the Maori culture, the indigenous culture, uh, they recognized in each other something very, very similar. Very, you know, a clan, tribal life structure, and there was a great deal of intermarrying, and a uh, lot, lot of influence going back, backwards and forwards. And so we filmed that there, and uh, Sam Hewen, who I did it with, um, my my uh, co-star in in, in Outlander, he, he really wanted to put me through um, a series of terrifying ordeals, mm. um, adrenaline ordeals, and he succeeded in doing so. It's frankly a miracle, I'm speaking yeah. to you now.
0: And when Graham McTavish looks in the mirror, what does he see?
5: <laughs> what do I see? Oh, I only see faults, you see. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I see. I see. I, I, I look, I look. I sometimes try and, yeah, there's, because I have, a, I have a sort of theory that, and maybe this is true of everyone, that there's an age that we're kind of trapped in, inside, you know, in our mind. I mean, we're obviously, you know, we develop, we have, you know, we learn things, we experience things and all the rest of it. You know, some of us have children, some of us get married, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I've always felt that there's a great part of me that's sort of trapped as a 12-year-old boy. Mm. And um, and I've, I've kind of lived with that 12-year-old boy ever since. But when I look in the mirror, of course, I see a 62-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, um, it, it's sometimes hard. It's hard. Uh but I, I do truly believe that we carry this this person within us and and that person expresses himself or herself through our lives. And, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to do a job where it's okay to access a 12-year-old's mind um, in terms of your imagination. But uh, I think a lot of us can relate to it.
0: Thank you, Graham McTavish, for joining us on the show from London.
5: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And The Witcher is in season three, and Men in Kills is in its second season. And coming up next on Arts Express. If I found this story, someone else will too. I'm not letting another station beat me.
3: I want you to hold off, two hours.
0: Only if you let me film their capture.
3: Unacceptable, but what I do need you to do right now is to report that all three shooters were killed this morning. I am not in the business of lying to my viewers. Oh, is that so? I have a job to do. I want you to postpone it. Why should I? Take this card. Hold on to it.
7: What is that?
3: No matter how blessed our lives, how charmed our existence, things still inevitably, irrevocably go wrong. Your mother swindled out of her savings. Your estranged husband runs off with your kids. Your best friend goes on vacation in a foreign land and disappears eventually bad things find us all you ever hear the get out of jail free card this is a get out of hell card at some point in your life god forbid you have nowhere else to turn call that number
6: hi this is jack shalom you just heard a clip from the television series the unit which aired about 15 years ago Well, not my particular cup of tea. It was widely recognized as one of the best-written series on television, and that was in no small part due to the fact that playwright and screenwriter David Mamet was the creator of the show. A little while after the series was canceled in its fourth year, despite the uniformly positive notices, a leaked memo from Mamet to the writing staff emerged. In it he gave some of the best and most succinct writing advice that can be given for writers of a screenplay. Now I know that in our audience there are lots of those pursuing the writing art so I thought it would be fun and instructive to share Mamet's memo in full. There's a bit of salty language that we had to avoid because of radio rules and also to get the full flavor of the memo you should know that it was printed in all capital letters. So now here's David Mamet's memo to the writing staff of The Unit. To the writers of The Unit, greetings. As we learn to write this show, a recurring problem becomes clear. The problem is this. To differentiate between drama and non-drama. Let me break it down now. Everyone in creation is screaming at us to make the show clear. We are tasked with, it seems, cramming a load of information into a little bit of time. Our friends, the penguins, think that we, therefore, are employed to communicate information. And so, at times, it seems to us. But, note, the audience will not tune in to watch information. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. No one would or will. The audience will only tune in and stay tuned to watch drama. Question What is drama? Drama, again, is the quest of the hero to overcome those things which prevent him from achieving a specific acute goal. So we, the writers, must ask ourselves of every scene these three questions. 1. Who wants what? 2. What happens if they don't get it? 3. Why now? The answer to these questions are litmus paper. Apply them, and their answer will tell you if the scene is dramatic or not. If the scene is not dramatically written, it will not be dramatically acted. There is no magic fairy dust which will make a boring, useless, redundant, or merely informative scene dramatic after it leaves your typewriter. You, the writers, are in charge of making sure every scene is dramatic. This means that all the little expositional scenes of two people talking about a third... This bourgeois, and we all tend to write it on the first draft, is less than useless should it finally, God forbid, get filmed. If the scene bores you when you read it, rest assured it will bore the actors and will then bore the audience and we're all going to be back in the breadline. Someone has to make the scene dramatic. It is not the actor's job. The actor's job is to be truthful. It is not the director's job. His or her job is to film it straightforwardly and remind the actors to talk fast. It is your job. Every scene must be dramatic. That means the main character must have a simple, straightforward, pressing need which impels him or her to show up in the scene. This need is why they came. It is what the scene is about their attempt to get this need met will lead, at the end of the scene, to failure. This is how the scene is over. It, this failure, will then, of necessity, propel us into the next scene. All these attempts, taken together, will, over the course of the episode, constitute the plot. Any scene, thus, which does not both advance the plot and stand alone, that is, dramatically by itself, on its own merits, is either superfluous or incorrectly written. Yes, but yes, but yes, but you say, what about the necessity of writing in all that information? And I respond, figure it out. Any blankhead with a blue suit can be, and is, taught to say, make it clearer and i want to know more about him when you've made it so clear that even this blue-suited penguin is happy both you and he or she will be out of the job the job of the dramatist is to make the audience wonder what happens next not to explain to them what just happened or to suggest to them what happens next any blank head, as above, can write, but Jim, if we don't assassinate the prime minister in the next scene, all Europe will be engulfed in flame. We are not getting paid to realize that the audience needs this information to understand the next scene, but to figure out how to write the scene before us such that the audience will be interested in what happens next. Yes, but yes, but yes, but yeah, you reiterate. And I respond, figure it out. How does one strike the balance between withholding and vouchsafing information? That is the essential task of the dramatist. And the ability to do that is what separates you from the lesser species in their blue suits. Figure it out. Start every time with this inviolable rule. The scene must be dramatic. It must start because the hero has a problem, and it must culminate with the hero finding him or herself either thwarted or educated that another way exists. Look at your log lines. Any log line reading, Bob and Sue discuss, is not describing a dramatic scene. Please note that our outlines are generally spectacular. The drama flows out between the outline and the first draft. Think like a filmmaker rather than a functionary, because in truth, you are making the film. What you write, they will shoot. Here are the danger signals. Anytime two characters are talking about a third, the scene is a crock of blank. Anytime any character is saying to another, as you know, that is telling another character what you, the writer, need the audience to know, the scene is a crock of blank. Do not write a crock of blank. Write a ripping three, four, seven minute scene which moves the story along and you can very soon buy a house in Bel Air and hire someone to live there for you. Remember, you're writing for a visual medium. Most television writing, ours included, sounds like radio. The camera can do the explaining for you. Let it. What are the characters doing literally? What are they handling? What are they reading? What are they watching on television? What are they seeing? If you pretend the characters can't speak and write a silent movie, you will be writing great drama. If you deprive yourself of the crutch of narration, exposition, indeed of speech, you will be forged to work in a new medium, telling the story in pictures, also known as screenwriting. This is a new skill. No one does it naturally. You can train yourselves to do it, but you need to start. I close with the one thought. Look at the scene and ask yourself, Is it dramatic? Is it essential? Does it advance the plot? Answer truthfully. If the answer is no, write it again or throw it out. If you've got any questions, call me up. Love, Dave Mamet Santa Monica, 19th of October, 2005 Yes, it's not your responsibility to know the answers, but it is your and my responsibility to know and to ask the right questions over and over until it becomes second nature. I believe they are listed above. You've been listening to playwright and screenwriter David Mamet's memo to the writers of his television series, The Unit. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
5: I'm Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues and I want to give a big shout out to the listeners of Arts Express. Lots of love I love Tuesday afternoon. My mind was elsewhere very a lot of the time, you know, chemically, mystically and emotionally. But yeah, pretty much that's what happened. That what That's what happened. And um, yeah, I love Tuesday afternoon. It's all in the music. But I, I think the best way to influence the world is try and make the world a better place through music. That's my purpose.
0: Next on Arts Express.
4: Hello, America. This is Peter Weiss from Red, Iowa. I'm interviewing somebody I knew 50 years ago. Half a century. Sounds even worse, doesn't it? So Bob and I were never uh, close friends in high school, but we did go to high school together. Bob at that time was an aspiring rock musician in a band called The Jesters, who were sort of iconic in the uh, southeastern Iowa region. And uh, we went our separate ways during the '60s, and here I am back in Burlington, and he's uh, like the Paul Simon song, the only living boy in New York. It's the only living boy in Burlington, I think that I knew anyway. He's a rock on tour. He would call himself a storyteller. He's a musician. He uh, works. He used to write a column for the local paper. He, you know, interviews people. So this is sort of a reversal. But what I I'm uh, here to ask him is because I'm really interested in a novel he wrote about 20 years ago. Is that right, Bob?
7: Uh, It's been longer than that, Peter. I'd like to disagree with you right off the bat. Of course. (laughs) Okay. We knew each other 60 years ago, and (laughs) we spent every damn day together for... Some period of time in our life, so yes, at one point we were close friends. Oh,
4: okay. Uh, well, uh, I
7: see you've forgotten the past. <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: Same <laughs>
7: as me. <laughs> After
4: seventy, I get a, I get a uh, broad excuse for that. Uh, so, um, uh, anyway, I take that. I, I take that as uh, uh, good
7: uh, timeline on David Spurik. That's that's what you'd like.
4: Yes, uh, I want to discuss his novel. Um, maybe this is the first of many interviews. But his
7: novel was called In Memory of David's Buick. Uh, He wrote it. How long ago, Bob? I began writing it in 1974, and I published it, self-published it, in 2011.
4: And at that time, were you playing music, or what what were you doing besides? During the
7: whole time, that whole time period, I played music. I had just gone to Vietnam to do a documentary video a columnist at the Des Moines Register who wanted me to uh, be the videographer on a video of his great bike ride across America, where about 350 people from around the country rode from the Queen Mary in Long Beach up to San Francisco, all the way across the country to Washington, D.C. And I sat down with myself and decided, you know, Bob, you started working on this damn novel in 1973, so either do it or throw all these typewritten pages in the trash bin and burn them. And so I decided to do it, which meant, okay, i got to get away from everything that's familiar to me and all the people I know so that I can pay attention and actually write.
4: Okay. Well, the story arc is really about a, a young man named Bucky Minow,
7: mm-hmm.
4: uh, who was your alter ego. I don't think you disagree with that. And so uh, he becomes a musician, uh, as per Bob did back in the day. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, somebody steals his song, uh, a heartless agent from Chicago, I believe, who's uh, not a very, it's like a Boris person from Boris and Natasha, but much greasier. And (laughs) the rest of the novel involves him trying to retrieve his his song, which is purloined by, by the nasty agent, and includes some sort of Hunter Thompson passages in it, but uh, not not uh, extreme, I don't think. And um, it's really an odyssey of, of Bucky Minow, and uh, also an Odyssey regarding his older brother, who uh, I don't want to spoil the end, but uh, ends up in the Vietnam War. So my first question is, Bob, I know that you never joined uh, you never performed music because
7: you want to become rich. And the folk Performed. Performed. Didn't I say performed? I thought you were going to ask me why I'm a draft dodger, which I am. No. no okay. No, no. I'm trying to keep politics out of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> they asked me to join the Army, and I said I was too busy. Okay.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, so my question is, what about this song? And I've heard, I think I've heard the song. Uh, which is a wonderful song with a terrific guitar solo by Bob in it. What about this song makes it so important that he travels across America risking his life in order to retrieve it from a uh, broken-down country Western singer who who the Asian had delivered the song to and revived his career. And uh, w- without getting into too much analysis, does this have something to do with Indian heritage in, in Iowa? The, the song, the folklore, the oral tradition, um, it's more like a theft of a culture to you, a metaphor, or is it going way too deep?
7: The reason there's a lot of Native American history and culture and background and and focus on this is because I was lucky enough to go Spend several weeks on the road with Grace Thorpe, who is Jim Thorpe's daughter. Oh. And, and A great football player from Notre Dame. Yep. And founded the NFL. Oh. And uh, the Carlisle Indian School is gone. And Carlisle, Pennsylvania is now called Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Jim Thorpe is a huge, huge force in getting white America to wake up and pay attention to the fact that there was somebody living here when we moved in. So, uh, hanging out with grace and going to the national Congress of American Indians and doing things like that. So I, after that, I went off to write this novel and yeah, yeah, that was definitely going to be a part of it Mm -hmm. because that was how I was going to tie together this mysticism sort of that I wanted Bucky Minnow to experience. And, try to explain to people who might read the novel why it's this magical, mystical thing to write a song.
4: Okay, the Buick itself, What what is the centrality of the Buick, because
7: it's in the title? We'd write around in David's Buick. I was living in uh, Eugene, Oregon, and I would go trout fishing all the time up in the Cascades and think, I want to write write a book about what it's like to write songs for a rock and roll band. Mm-hmm. You know, grizzled old sage that I was right, at the time. Right, I right, think right. 22 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought, what do I want to call it? I don't know. You know it should be r- riding around in David's car. So I wrote a song called In Memory of David Buick and played it in a band and did a recording with it. Found out later someone else recorded it under their name as in memory of David's Cadillac. Aha, uh-huh. okay,
4: now we're getting because to Because
7: I was in a band with this person. But if you're listening, you stole my song, okay? And that's where this comes from. Is I when see I you. found well, out okay. several years later that he, it's... I'm not even going to tell you the name of the band, okay? Because this isn't an accusation, it's just a story. No. I found out that somebody ripped off my song, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. and claimed... Apparently, the person that heard it and saw it and saw the record that was made with it said no. It says it's written by you and him. I see. And it's called In Memory of David's Cadillac. And can I swear on this show? Not really. Okay. It'll get beat. Okay. Well, no, we don't want to do that. Um, I'm sure you can all imagine <laughs> my thoughts at the moment. And it's just... And sensed that somebody, that's my song, it's about my friend and my friend's car. Mm -hmm. And how could you possibly claim that you wrote that? Mm -hmm. And that's what prompted this. So when Ah, okay, this is a revelation. (laughs) And and I wanted to write a book and in part grind this guy up in my gears a little bit and spit (laughs) him out. But, you know, when you get in, you know this, Peter, when you get into the creative process, the door you open Mm -hmm. to walk through into this world where you're going to create this thing that comes entirely out of a non-physical, you can't touch your mind, but that's where it comes from. It Mm -hmm. comes from... Your inspiration. Yeah, it comes from nothingness. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean... Abnail. Yeah. Yeah. And... And once you do that, you'd have no idea. Anybody, if, if there's anybody out there who is wanting to be a creative person and write, paint, sing, act, I don't care what it is, if uh, is—if if you, if, if you want to be the artist that's inside of you, go have the ideas and then set them free by saying, I'm going to create this and I'm going to put a period at the end of that sentence. And don't try and control everything as you make the journey because God, I get so tired of saying this, but it's true. It's the journey, not the Mm -hmm. the chorus, everybody destination.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I understand that. But um, what we're, what we're getting to is you don't want any changes on that book because to you, it is a, uh, it's a still in a film of the history of American culture. I would say it's you're stopping the camera and
7: you have this still here and that's, the picture you want to be known for. I could rewrite the entire book from today's perspective where people have Apple watches and all of that mm-hmm. and the basic rhythm and path of the whole thing wouldn't change at all. Okay. Because it's about, it's about what people do and how people handle things and my view of why are we here in the first place mm-hmm. and what's the universe all about. Mm-hmm. Okay, and an Apple watch compared to I gotta stop at a payphone and put a quarter in. It right. doesn't change anything. Yeah. You know, like like have you noticed I noticed yeah. this that as time goes by we see fewer and fewer movies that were made prior to about nineteen ninety where the police detective has to pull over and go get in a phone booth and put a quarter <laughs> in to call headquarters. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Right. Um, because people today don't understand that. What else? Um sequel. I mean,
4: are you interested in writing a sequel to
7: Well, I, I finished off uh David's Buick uh definitely so I could do a sequel.
4: Oh okay. Good.
7: Because it ends with Bucky Minnow walking along the edge of are you sure you want to reveal this? It ends with Bucky Minnow's thoughts of, of what he was doing at the time. Okay. I, you know, subconsciously, I put my hand over the microphone. That's weird. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, a sequel is easy to do, but but this novel, that this is the last time I'll ever write a book without somebody giving me money to write upon, you know, so I don't have to go out and do things like... Uh, <laughs> review a sale at a grocery store, Mm, you know? But you use that to lead into a question. Well, I mean... um, He's going to say something about Nietzsche now, ladies and gentlemen. No, I'm not, (laughs) no.
0: and that was music performed by Bob Saar based on his novel he's been talking about in memory of David's Buick. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.